This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Let's play you a clip to start the show off from uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, and this was at the mayor's breakfast. Yeah, yeah, I think I will uh, absolutely run again. I think it's uh, there's many things that we have to get across the line. I'd like to celebrate, uh, you know, we're happy that we're, we're moving forward, but uh, this is going to be a long journey, and I want to make sure that we uh, get this thing shovel in the ground stage uh, some somewhere in 2018. All right, there you have it. So the mayor announcing uh, quite informally yesterday uh, that he was going to run again. To talk more about all of this, former mayor of Hamilton, Larry Diani, is with us in studio. Thanks for coming in, Larry. Good to see you. Nice to see you. So is it true you are running for mayor as well? <laughs> I'm running. You knew I had to start let, with that l- one. Let me make it official. <laughs> I am running for the hills. <laughs> uh, would you ever entertain that thought again? Or uh... No, I think, uh, you know, uh, to every uh, uh, season there is a day, and uh, I've had my season, and it was a great ride. But, uh, no, I, I'm happy on the sidelines. What was your fondest memory about being mayor? You know, it's an exciting position. It's filled with tension sometimes and and obviously stress. But you get to set the agenda um, for the whole municipality. And if you do things right, you can actually move the yardsticks in a positive way. So um, there are lots of uh, examples of that. But but overall, uh, you get to do that. And you're the chief magistrate for the city. And so there's some excitement around that. Uh, Biggest challenge? Well, it, you know, we have a weak mayor system in this in this uh, country, in this province and country, mm-hmm. uh, which means no reflection on the mayor. It just means that you are one vote among your council colleagues, yeah. uh, as opposed to the American system where you bring in a whole administration. You bring in your chief uh, yeah. engineer and, uh, admi- you know, the city administrator and so on, and, and you control the agenda. You actually, as mayor in the United States, get to say what gets on the agenda. Here, anybody gets to say what gets on the agenda. So so you have to deal with that as a member of a team, uh, but that also offers some opportunities to to build team and and uh, drive agendas because of the power of your ideas and not just because of the strength of the position. Um, obviously, there's been some challenges in this city, whether it's a stadium, now LRT, uh, the link, Red Hill, all of that in the past. Do all these carry the same amount of weight? Are they all just as difficult individually? Um, or has so, one been more than the other? So some are more difficult than others, especially those that rely on on other levels of government for financial support. Right. Uh, I've witnessed the LRT, witnessed certainly the uh, the expressway, uh, where there was a considerable um, uh, a provincial contribution. And so when you don't control what other bodies yeah. do, it makes it a little more difficult. But Hamilton's a feisty place, and we love to have fights, it seems, uh, over major issues. And uh, and it makes it interesting, I guess. That's what makes the city what it is, really. Uh, surprised at what Mayor Fred Eisenberger let out the other day. No, I'm not surprised that he's running. Um, and, of course, it seemed like a totally um, in, impromptu sort of announcement. Mm-hmm. He must have been asked a question. I wasn't at the event, uh, and he answered it forthrightly. Um, I'm sure that, that if he thought about how he positioned the reason for running— He'll want to do that in a more appropriate way probably uh, going forward because he seemed to say, unless there's more to the to the soundbite that I just heard uh, other than what he said, it seemed to say that, that he's running to make sure that LRT is implemented mm-hmm. uh, appropriately, which is great. It's, it's, part of, it's part of what needs to be done. But it's not the only reason uh, that uh, I'm sure that he, he wants to run. There are mm-hmm. other issues that we need to deal with. And to some extent, now that the decision has been made around the project, uh, the implementation will be left up to staff with uh, political oversight. I'm sure that there will be new and exciting things that any candidate for the mayoralty will want to bring forward. So I'm not surprised that he said yes. I'm a little surprised that he sort of telescoped it into that one item. Um, are That being said, anybody, well, let me ask it this way. How much will the LRT uh, play into the next mayoral election or, 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 or the whole thing for that matter? Um, I don't think as much as some people probably think that, that it will play into it. I think that there was a, a huge sigh of relief, regardless of which side of the fence you were on, once the decision was made by council. And so now we move on to the mm-hmm. implementation stage. So you don't think there's going to be another 
challenge down the road? Well, there may be a challenge. I mean, I think there yeah. will be people who will be determined to fight this all um, of the way. I mean, I remember when we uh, voted in favor of uh, of the expressway as we were building it. People were climbing trees and and protesting it. People were in the valley and protesting yeah. it. Uh, so, you know, that that will not stop those who are against this project from protesting it. But really, the big decisions have been made. And just as we knew uh, with the implementation of the link that the protest would eventually go away, uh, so too will the protest once the imp- implementation happens go away here as well. Do you think that uh, that reveals his confidence about not only himself, but also about LRT saying, yeah, you know what, I am going to hitch myself to this right through the election. I mean, that being said, how could he not? Yeah, how could he not? I mean, mm-hmm. it was a significant victory and he yeah. fought very hard for it. We know where he stands. Uh, yeah. and, and we know where he stands on it and, and he's going to uh, do the right thing. I think that's a responsible thing to say, that, that I'm going to make sure that the implementation works out well. Um, I, it's not the only message that he'll have. And, of course, uh, we're not into campaign, and this was a uh, a quick uh, answer to a quick question that was asked. Right. Uh, but there will be other issues that he'll want to tackle as well, or any candidate that will come forward for mayoralty, and I suspect there will be other candidates as well. Uh, do you think momentum's on his side? Well, I think this was a significant victory. If people were looking at uh, at this defeat as, as being a challenge uh, to his leadership, the fact that the vote went appropriate uh, uh, in terms of the project and, yeah. and it was a strong affirmation, yeah. a 10 to 5 vote, uh, is also a testament to leadership. If people are going to criticize the nay side, they should applaud the yay side as well. How much of that is him bringing the council together like that? Well, I think uh, I think uh, he worked very hard. I know I was at City Hall for different reasons uh, the week leading up to the vote, and, and he was present. He was on the second floor uh, talking to people a couple of times as I was talking to people. He barged in and politely barged in and, and uh, said, you know, I want to talk to you next uh, kind of thing, uh, not me, the, the councillors. Um, uh, and so he worked very hard. Mm-hmm. And don't forget that he was the one who went to Queen's Park and also secured the billion-dollar contribution. That's no small potatoes. I remember when I went to Queen's Park, I was pretty happy to get $20 million yeah. to—I uh, to, um, uh, did it several times, by the way, uh, <laughs> to help with our social services costs, and I was pretty proud of that. So a billion bucks is considerably higher. Uh, starting early in a race like this, advantages, disadvantages? Well, A, you can't start early. There's no official campaign um, until, and I can't remember the exact date, until the, uh, the I think I think it's the January of the year of right. the election, so until 2018. So you can't raise funds. You, right. you can't, you know, uh, put out letters or brochures or any of that sort of overt campaigning. I suppose you can announce that you're running, that, that there's nothing wrong with that, and you can start your organizational team, and I don't know whether uh, Mayor Fred has done that or not, uh, but, um, but you can't. But yes, it's a much, uh, it's much too long of a period. Uh, you'll be exhausted if you start campaigning now. Quite frankly, from January till the fall uh, is, is a very long period as well, and it's a very exhausting period. And it quite it frankly takes you away from the uh, administrative duties yeah. you also have. Uh, It did sound like it was very impromptu, almost off the cuff. That being said, uh, this obviously was something that he would have thought about uh, prior to this. Uh, Do you think he was ready to let the cat out of the bag at this point? Well, I haven't spoken with him about that, uh, so I'm not sure um, uh, whether whether indeed it was something that he thought about and if asked, I will tell sort of thing. Uh, It did seem very casual and very impromptu, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm sure that he thought and uh, talked over with his wife, Diane, um, about the, uh, the, uh, the option of running again. And I'm sure he had determined that he was going to do it. Uh, do you think this will encourage or discourage others from joining the race? Interesting. Um, you know, one of the advantages of, of when you're the incumbent of declaring early is to scare off right. uh, others who may be interested uh, but would only run if there was a vacancy. Um, on the other hand, it certainly gives others now that, that he is back in the game. More focus. Uh, more focus, and, and they're going to start looking at ways of attacking an opponent as opposed to uh, running and being part of an administrative team. And, of course, there are rumors around there as to people running, including uh, you know people from the private sector. Um, um, but 
uh, be that as it may, it's it's very tough um, uh, when you're an incumbent person to be dislodged. Uh, can the uh, mayoral race derail LRT? I don't see how. Um, I mean, even let's let's take the uh, the projection that that somebody who doesn't support the project um, is elected yeah. as mayor. Um, council has already voted. Uh, millions of dollars have been spent. Even uh, people like uh, uh, like Chad Collins, who uh, Councillor Collins, who who weren't supportive of the project, specifically mentioned that that uh, as well as the many millions of dollars that have already been spent, if the vote was delayed, more money would right. be spent. So imagine, mm-hmm. imagine if we're into the fall of 2018. All the money that has been spent, and for someone to to uh, to say no to that and throw all that money away would be very foolish. And not only that, you have to if you are the winning candidate of a no vote, uh, you have to convince others yeah. to yeah. be on your side mm. as well. Uh, so you don't think there'll be a candidate out there that will campaign uh, for stopping the LRT? I I didn't say that. I think it's a little too early to to tell. Um, I, we'll we'll be able to see. Uh, by the number of complications that might arise between now and uh, and the declaration, and if there are more surprises, if uh, the cost goes up, if, uh, for example, the uh, Eastgate uh, terminus doesn't materialize mm-hmm. or people have to throw in uh, some local money into that project, there could be all sorts of things that might motivate people. But it's too early to say. Pretty hard to predict this, isn't it? It is. Uh, how would a news like this play at council, or does it, the fact that the mayor would announce this? I don't think there would be one person around that council table surprised by what the mayor said. Yeah. So, so they. what about the fact that they're announcing it, or he announced it so early? I don't think that that would be uh, um, neither here nor there for council members. I, I think they... They would have been shocked if he had said anything other than what he said. Do you think this is resonating in the city within with voters? Well, you know, I hadn't heard about that. I was not at the event, as I said, so I hadn't heard about that until I got the call to be on on this show. So I don't know how widely known it is. It will be over the next little while because the media is picking it up. Uh, and it is big news. Mm-hmm, you know, when an mm-hmm. incumbent decides to run it is big news and it should be picked up. But I, I think people are going to uh, not be surprised by it, uh, but reserve their decision until voting day. That being said, does it change the attitude around LRT? Does it change the attitude? Does it change the confidence of council? I think what it does is it confirms the confidence that certainly the mayor has yeah. and now his nine colleagues, the 10 of them have, in terms of being confident that this is a project that will withstand political scrutiny during an election campaign. And uh, and that's good for the city, I think. I think we need to be confident of major projects, and we seem to have that confidence now. So there is a spring to everybody's step. Uh, I have to ask uh, a comment on uh, one of the councillors making comments on uh, the LRT up in Kitchener, um, and a reporter up there got wind of it, and of course uh, there was some mud going back and forth. How important is it for... Uh, council to keep a handle on this sort of thing and 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 you know make their position known, but don't take it to that extent where it looks bad on the city. Well, I don't know if it looked bad on the city. All the councilor, all the and it, it was Councillor Kelly, right? It was Skelly, uh, yeah. Skelly Donna yeah. Skelly. Um, uh, all she said was that the uh, the uh, uh, as far as she was concerned, the wires, yeah. the wires were ugly. Yeah. Uh, so it was an what she said on this show. Yeah. Okay, she said that oh, yeah, on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that was her opinion. Like, buzz off, person from Kitchener. <laughs> if someone feels that something is unsightly, it's unsightly. You know, he had to write a column, and it made controversy. And I guess that's good for. Let him. me ask you this question, and I posed this to Councillor Skelly as well. Uh, how would she feel, or you feel, if a councillor in Toronto said the same thing about Hamilton, say at Stadium? I'd say buzz off, Councillor from Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I remember saying that a few times when people kind of interfered with yeah. uh, with, with local events. I remember we had um, um, uh, we had some some ads that turned out posters, uh, billboards 
that uh, turned out to have been put up by a local beer company. I, oh, no, I think it was this station. Oh, the radio station. <laughs> it was the radio station. <laughs> yes. You know, Toronto sucks, and yeah. so we got all sorts of invective, yeah, yeah, and we yeah. had to push back. And it turned out to be you guys. <laughs> no, no, it was our FM station. It, it wasn't was. me, Larry, but you're right. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Although we knew nothing about that here either. Uh, thank you, Larry. Larry Deanny has been with us, former mayor of Hamilton, talking about uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger and his decision decision to run again next election. Thanks, Larry, as always. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Susan Claremont, of course, from your Hamilton Spectator, award-winning writer with your Hamilton Spectator. The current uh, headline, uh, Claremont, he redeemed himself, lawyer says, of slain Hamilton mobster, and Susan is with us now. Hello, Susan. How are you today? Hey, I'm good, Scott. Thanks. Thank you for taking the time. Appreciate it uh, very much. Your quote at the beginning of your column says, you're not allowed to outlive your mistakes. Explain that. Yeah, that's a quote from uh, Dean Paquette, uh, one of our city's uh, top criminal lawyers and someone I've known for a long time. Um, Dean has said that to me before in the context of, uh, you know, clients who... um, have faced criminal charges and been found not guilty. And, and you know, what he's speaking to there is that even when you're found not guilty, you can never, um, you, you can never get away from the stigma attached with it. But this week he used that line in connection with Ange Musitano. And um, that brings it into a whole different sphere. Um, for one thing, I learned for the first time this week that, that Dean Piccata was a personal friend of uh, Angie's, um, apart from being his lawyer over the years. And what, so what Dean was talking about was, you know, um, Angie Musitano uh, pleaded guilty to, um, to crimes connected to two murders. He served his time in prison. He paid his price legally, and yet um, he's never been able to move on from that. In that, in this community, if your name is Musitano, um, people take notice, and there's a, a huge burden that's attached with that name. And so, uh, though people. Uh, Talk about Ange turning his life around, becoming a, a Christian, being on the right path. He was never able to, to get past, um, in a lot of people's minds, the, the fact that he did have this criminal past. And, and you know, I couldn't help but note the irony that, that as well, you know, he didn't escape his criminal past because it might have been his criminal past that caused his death this week. Uh, when you when you say he couldn't get away with it from this, was it the Hamilton community in general or the crime community? I think both. I think um, I think the the name Susitano is is known far and wide um, in criminal circles. Um, you know, it, it's it, there's a long history there. Um, generations of Musitanos have been connected to organized crime. Not every Musitano. But, uh, but a number of them. And, you know, I have this little book, um, on my desk that someone gave me, uh, the night that Ange was killed. And, um, in it is a story written by Ange himself talking about his life and how he found God. And he talks about, um, you know, I, I come from the Musitano family. And then he says, and, and I mean the family. And with a the reference there being, mm-hmm. you know, his his own admission that he comes from a, a mob family. Uh, so he, it sounds like, made the decision to leave, but obviously uh, the peers that he worked with in the past didn't. Uh, does this just reinforce you can never leave even though you decide to? You know, and, and yeah, some experts have talked about that this week. Um, by all accounts, everyone I've talked to this week um, really does feel that that Ange was not um, into any criminal activity in the last few years. Um, but it does raise the question, so what is this all about? Why was he killed? Um, is it, you know, we're almost um, to the day on the, to the uh, 20th anniversary of the shooting of Johnny Pop's Papalia, um, a mob hit that is... Um, 
you know, uh, that is attributed to Ange Musitano and his older brother, Pat. So um, is it is it payback for something that happened 20 years ago or was there something going on more recently that um, that Ange's friends weren't aware of um, and maybe even the police weren't aware of? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Will we ever know, do you think, Susan? I, I, I think we will. I think, um, you know, I have, I have lots of faith in the Hamilton Police Homicide Unit. Um, uh, Detective Sergeant Peter Tom is uh, a, a seasoned detective who has been working night and day on this case. It, it's early hours yet. Um, it's only been a couple of days since this happened. But, um, you know, I, I have confidence that at some point an arrest will be made. And uh, when it gets to trial, we'll we'll find out what was behind all this. Getting uh, back to uh, how he had changed his life, uh, just because a, a person declares themselves out of this, uh, in this world, that doesn't change the past, does it? Especially when the rest are still in. Do they care about that? Uh, no, um, they don't. Uh, I did an interview uh, with um, one of Canada's leading experts on the mafia, uh, Antonio Nicasso, who talked about you know, there is no statute of limitations mm. when it comes to revenge in the mob. So, you know, he, he was careful to say that he didn't know what was behind um, the murder of Ange Musitano, but he did say that it's not unheard of for grudges to play out 10, 20, 30 years uh, later. Uh, so he thinks it is possible that this all goes back to uh, to the murder of uh, Johnny Pop's Papalia. Do you think the community is surprised? I think um, I think it is. You know, I think we have been lulled into believing that organized crime, traditional uh, Italian organized crime, no longer exists in Hamilton. We hear about it very rarely. The, the last time. Um, I've written about it. it was a couple of years ago when Pat Musutano's car was was set on fire in his driveway. Um, <clears throat> but when I started here 20 years ago, Scott, I, I wrote about mafia almost daily in the pages of The Spectator. It was um, it was happening everywhere all the time. Police were talking about it all the time. And, you know, that has certainly changed. I think it's also a surprise for people in Waterdown who were living on the same street as Ange Musitano and knew him only as um, a husband, uh, the father of three young sons, and uh, had no idea what his past was. So what is the buzz in that neighborhood now? Uh, you know, I, I think it's a lot of shock o- over what happened. Um, uh, the violence that played out in their beautiful, quiet neighborhood, and it really is a lovely neighborhood. Um, I think it's, it's shock to know, um, you know, Ange's background and that he was living there, um, uh, among them, a good neighbor by all accounts. Um, I think there's probably some, some, concern for everybody's safety there, Um, you know, and also there's so much commotion. You know, yesterday I was out there and there were media satellite trucks everywhere and police vehicles all over the place. And, uh, uh, and, and Sutano's home is still surrounded in police tape. So um, very difficult, I'm sure right now for all of those neighbors. Uh, talk about how Hamilton perceives this. I mean, there's always a curious interest in the history of of, of, of uh, the mob and gangsters in, in this city. But do, do we somehow gloss over, as you mentioned, you talked about safety, the violence and such that goes along with this, especially if you are in the neighborhood? Yeah, it, it is a weird thing in Hamilton. Um, certainly there is a fascination with the mob and our history as a mob city. Does that and make us more accepting of it? Does that, well, it's, you know, it's one of those. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, I think in some ways it does. Um, you know, and legitimately it is part of our history. And so we, we talk about it um, a lot. It's, it's, you know, in the pages of our history books. Um, but, you know, something that I always try to do as a columnist and have been, um, uh, you know, hopefully getting across to my readers this week is um, that this is a murder. 
You know, this isn't just another chapter in mm. a book. This isn't Hollywood, uh, you know, because people love to compare this stuff to to the mob in Hollywood movies. Um, these are real people. And Ange Misitano, regardless of what you think about him um, and his past or, or what he was doing with his life now, he has a wife and he has three very small boys who are so young, in fact, that a friend of Ange's said to me that he he wonders whether those boys will ever actually remember their father. Um, you know, and, and this is, as in any murder, um, you know, this affects the people who are left behind. So I, I think it is important to keep that in perspective and, and remember that this is um, that this is ugly and this is violent and that there are people grieving right now. Uh, you talked about how when you started here, there it was seemed like that's what you wrote about the most, and now in lately there's been a lull. Is that changing now? Do you think? Uh, is this a sign of things changing? Is are those organizations changing now with technology and such? I don't know, you know, it, and um, it, it will be interesting to see what happens in, in the weeks and months to come. Um, you know, traditional organized crime, uh, you know, the Italian mafia um, has for a long time um, reached out and um, and had relationships with other sorts of organized crime. Um, they work more and more often with um criminal biker gangs or with street gangs or or other types of, um, of organized uh, uh, crime organizations. And so what will come next? I, you know, I, I really don't know. Um, I wish I knew more about what the current landscape is um, regarding organized crime in Hamilton. Um, but the reality is we really haven't heard much about it in the last few years. This obviously draws more attention to all of that. How does that change things moving forward? And normally don't don't these organizations like to keep it more low-keyed? Uh, how do you think they feel or the police for more uh, for for bringing this to everyone's attention again? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure that uh, you know the Musteno family and and others are not um, looking forward to the publicity that all of this generates. Um, what it will mean for police? I mean, their most immediate concern is is solving this murder, but what it will do for um, you know gathering intelligence for um, special projects for the work they do in the months to come regarding organized crime here. I don't know. I bet that they are having lots of meetings behind closed doors right now to talk about those sorts of things. Susan Claremont has been with us, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. The column today, Claremont, he redeemed himself, lawyer says, of slain Hamilton mobster. Susan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thank you. Uh, let's bring in Theo Sellis, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. He is with us now. Hello, Theo. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Th- uh, good, thanks. Thank you for taking the time, as always. Theo, uh, the angle uh, on this, the, the question we want to ask you, how does, there, there was, uh, friends had said that, that, the, that Musitano was trying to move on, trying to change his life. Uh, whether there's truth to that or not, I'm guess uh, you know we will certainly find that out uh, over time. How does someone who has a past move forward from it and stop being judged by it? Yeah, it's a tough one, and and you know you like you, my initial reaction, like a lot of people's reaction, was to say, oh yeah, fountain god, you know, there's that kind of that initial sort of cynical response, and that of course is part of the problem too. Is even if that person genuinely. Uh, does want to change and is putting effort into change, it's harder to do without support. It's harder to do without believability. Um, so uh, in order to change, you, you really need to, people say, well, in order to change, what does it take to change? Well, you, you, you need to want to change. But it's more than just wanting to change. It's more than just motivation. It's also knowing how, like having learning particular skills and becoming more informed and more caring about your impact on other people and being able to be supported by people who will help you understand the impact of your actions and 
different ways of experiencing life, making sense of life, different ways of relating to people, uh, being able to come to terms with some of the things that you've done before, being able to find some way of, of offering some kind of forgiveness to yourself, being able to look for forgiveness for others, trying to have a sense that you've made it right so you're at peace with yourself. It's it's more than just going, well, I, I just want to be different. It's, it's a lot of work um, to try to make those kind of changes. Is the majority of the work have to be done on oneself or the perception that others have of you? Well, well, both. It's, it's really hard to change yourself when other people are still treating you the same way. And so one of the changes that oftentimes people have to, to make, like another example would be like if you're trying to um, quit drinking because maybe you've got a drinking problem. One of the hardest things about it is it's not just about your behavior. You oftentimes have to change your entire social context. You have to change and find new relationships, people who will support you um, and actually see you as being someone who's trying to be different. So there's a lot of work that you have to do in yourself in terms of self-reflection uh, and, uh, and, and learning about who you are and how you're going to be different and picking up some more social skills and personal skills. Uh, but there's also that finding a supportive network of people who will relate to this new you as opposed to continue, continue to uh, connect or try to connect with, engage the person that you're trying not to be anymore. What about uh, being associated with a, a name or uh, an individual or a family that maybe, you know, you have nothing to do with? How do you avoid just even the perception, not so much of your own past, but the past of those who are under the same umbrella that you are? Well, it's, I think it's hard because you think about... Um, you know, our identity and how much it's oriented to what we call ourselves. You know, who are you? Well, my name is, I'm Scott Thompson. Like, that's who I am. And so you're you're part of a larger background, a larger network uh, that starts to define who you are and how people think of you and how they relate to you. Um, so trying to find a new identity, personal identity, while still holding on to these other connections I think that's I think that's kind of challenging. That's why sometimes people do find it easier just to move, like move to another country or another city, and start all over again with people who, that don't really know about you. And of course, that's harder to do if you happen to have like a, a famous name. What if you're a uh, someone that owns a house, has a family, part of a family that's on that street? How do you cope with this moving forward? You mean the violence in the yeah. neighborhood? Like, yeah, it's, the event that happened. Yeah, it's it's um, you know that's that's really challenging. You know, it's that it's that sort of balance between you know being aware of what's going on with you and the potential for harm and protecting your family, but at the same time, not obsessing over it, not sort of you know focusing on all the problems that can happen, all the dangers that can happen. So. I think that for a little while, people are going to be, just naturally, are going to be unsettled. They're going to be on edge. You know, when something happens like this close by you, your defenses are immediately activated. You're going to be more aware. You're going to be more alert. Uh, and just allow that to happen. But people have a, a, an enormous capacity uh, for adaptation and being able to kind of reorient themselves back to the ordinary pace of their lives, you know. Mm. They've just got so many things going on that for a while this will become the thing that they're talking about and oriented towards. But as days go by where nothing happens, hopefully nothing happens, uh, people will just gradually go back and find themselves engaged in their own lives and their own routine and it'll become less and less of an issue. The fact that they didn't know that uh, that maybe the history of this individual or didn't know uh, what was going on and, and thought that things were safe, how does that change the psyche when all of a sudden something or someone or, or something that you didn't expect happens? Well, I just think it's a good opportunity to kind of look at life and understand that, you know, that's just fundamental about life. Even if you, you know, even if you knew the names of someone in your neighborhood, like that, that, that happens a lot when people start saying, we want to know the names of people who are released for specific offenses in the neighborhood. We want to identify them. So well, yeah, can... well, this turn is individual Andes. We'll want to know everything about anybody that's living next to us, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. At the end of the day, people are complaining. We never know who we're living next to now. Well, that's the thing is that you can, you know, maybe it's really more um, <clears throat> helpful to get a little bit more philosophical and say, look, 
um, you know, there's no way of you being able to protect yourself by knowing everything about everyone in your neighborhood. And that, that kind of like will do more psychological harm to you and your family to have this sort of persistent need to be on guard and find out everything about everyone as opposed to, you know, this is part of life, unfortunately. And, you know, you want to minimize risk. But at the same time, you know, how many, how many times do we hear from people who go, holy crap, he was such a nice man or they were such a great family. And they've been living beside them for for twenty years or thirty years, right? And so, does this mess? Does this make us question our own thoughts, our own values, our own uh, sense of of responsibility, and in, in how observant we are of what's going on around us? Well, I think it. I think it. Any time this kind of thing happens, especially in our neighborhood, we we end up asking ourselves these kind of questions about, you know, should we know more and and. Uh, is it possible for people to be rehabilitated and should there be more protections? And is it, are we really safe? I mean, it brings up issues of, of safety and concerns about our well-being and the well-being of our family members. So we're going to ask these kind of questions. But hopefully we, we, we don't respond by um, becoming this sort of vigilante and really obsessed with trying to make sure that everyone in the neighborhood meets certain criteria and be really suspicious about each other. I think it's just fundamentally part of life. There is an element of risk to life. And so how do you live your life with that element of risk? Mm. You know, you, you've got to protect yourself, but at the same time, if you become overprotective and sort of anti sort of new people or strangers and then you're kind of destroying the sense of security that you think that you're trying to establish. Theo Sellis has been with us, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Theo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Of course, what we're talking about, uh, the pig lady who was charged with mischief for giving pigs water uh, while they were in a truck, in a truck that was running in an intersection, trying to make a left-hand turn on a busy street. Uh, that person that was feeding the pigs water has been found uh, not guilty of mischief. To find out, uh, well, first we got some response here. Let's hear from uh, the pig lady herself. Currently, the judge said that, you know, under Canadian law, they are property. And so, you know, I'm not happy with that. And that's something that our group is going to try to change, you know, through legislation. Like, just we're going to keep on building our movement and, um, you know, the laws need to change. And here is the lawyer representing her. What the judge has clearly said in this ruling delivered meticulously from the bench is that compassion is not a crime. Giving water to a thirsty pig is not a crime. All right, there you have it. Let's bring in Jeffrey Reed, Hamilton attorney. He is with us now. Hello, Jeffrey. How are you today? Well, hi, Scott. I don't know how I'm going to uh, follow an opening like that. There's something in show business about following acts with uh, do- uh, dogs and kids. That's right. Forget it. You'll never win. You'll never win, Jeffrey. I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, why was she not convicted of mischief? Well, I haven't read the ruling, so I really can't tell you. But uh, if I could just put a little legal context, it wouldn't take me uh, more than a, Go for a minute it. or so. Uh, this is a charge of mischief. Uh, mischief uh, is defined under the criminal code in uh, four ways. Uh, it is destroying or damaging property. That's one. Mm-hmm. Another is rendering property dangerous, useless, inoperative, or ineffective. And the third and fourth ways are when you obstruct or interrupt or interfere with the lawful use, enjoyment, or operation of property or anybody who is trying to lawfully use, enjoy, or operate the property. So basically we're talking about where you destroy property or you prevent it from being properly used. That, that's sort of dumbing it down a little bit. But, um, so the first question you'd have to ask, and in, if you ask that context, to say, well, did what, she, what she did, does it look like she was doing any of those things? It doesn't look like she was uh, making it dangerous, useless, inoperative, or ineffective. It doesn't look like she was destroying or damaging it. There's another element that you need to know just a little bit on. Um, There is a defense uh, under the criminal code. It's actually in the criminal code itself, and it says no person shall be convicted of an offense under basically this section where um, it's proven that the person uh, acted with legal justification or excuse and with color of right. Now, the magic words there are color of right Hmm. because... Color rights are a very difficult thing to define, but it basically means if you have a sense that you're doing what's right. Um, now, there is some case law that says a moral, uh, 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 a belief in, uh, you know, moral belief in something isn't, isn't good enough. There's one case that says that, but but color right means something like an honest belief 
in a state of facts that, if it existed, would be a legal justification or excuse. And it doesn't. And the, only, and the claim of right only has to be one that is uh, honest. It, it, it could actually be wrong in law or wrong in fact, which, you know, we always hear, uh, ignorance of the law is no excuse, but this is almost like a variation of that. So if I had to sort of try to, I haven't read the reasons. I know Justice Harris is uh, is, a, is very sharp on the law. Like, he, he's not he's not a, a judge who you'd uh, uh, think will make a mistake on the law. So I expect it's a fairly, you know, legally soundly reasoned decision. I would think he's going to have gone on uh, one of, or two points. He's probably going to have looked at it and said, Giving water hasn't interfered with this property. It hasn't made it uh, uh, inoperative or useless. It hasn't uh, interfered with anybody's use of it. It hasn't uh, destroyed or damaged it. That's, that's probably the first thing. So the Crown probably had a problem with that. The, the other thing is that uh, it may well be he, he might have given some allowance to uh, this lady saying, look, I'm acting for humanitarian reasons, um, especially when there doesn't seem to be any harm you can see out of it. And there is a principle of law, although I don't know if anybody raised it or if it applied in this case. It's, uh, it's the law doesn't concern itself with trifles. If you were using the old Latin expression to say de minimis non curat lex, but, but it's known as the de minimis principle. It just means like if it's so minor, just you know, get out of court. Right. If I had to put a context on the whole thing, and I, 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 I don't know any more about this than uh, you or your... Uh, or your listeners, uh, probably less. I just see what's in the, you know, the media. But uh, I, I would think that uh, this is a case where uh, you first ask yourself the question: Did the prosecution use good discretion in bringing this case? Like, is it really in the public interest? Because, as you point out, it's expensive to bring prosecutions. It, mm-hmm. And and the, and especially you weigh that in the context of like, did they really think that they had much of a case to bring? So if it's a if it's a kind of a legally iffy case. And it doesn't look like it's the sort of thing you really want to bring the heavy hammer of criminal law to bear. Um, then you sort of wonder about the good sense of bringing it. But once it's brought in the court, then there it is. I should add one more thing. Um, there, there's, a, there's a saying, it's not 100% applicable in this case, but there's a saying that uh, hard cases made bad law. It comes out of a slightly different context. But let me leave you with this. You've got a lady who probably most listeners, if they cared about the issue at all, would say, look, it's, it's, it's being humane. What's the harm? Give them some, some water to some animals that are on their way to the slaughterhouse. They're going to die anyways, and uh, et cetera. Uh, it's, what's the harm? And so in that context, she probably comes across, uh, you know, a sort of sympathetically. And so while a judge has to apply the law, wherever it takes the judge, because uh, it's the law of the land, judges are not allowed to just change it because they don't like it, you're going to probably ha- have a judge who would be sympathetic to uh, a case where there it looks like they don't really have right. uh, a, a good legally sound case. So uh, you said there were basically three reasons in order to get a conviction. The first two... Destroy com- or damage property. Right, and then the second... Or render property dangerous, useless, inoperative, or ineffective. And the third was interference. Well, the third thing was to obstruct or interfere... Uh, with the lawful use or enjoyment or operation of the property, or anybody who's trying to do that. So how is this not interfering with the trucker trying to get his load to where it needs to be? Well, I don't know what the actual facts are. The I know one media report, I heard you say he was trying to make a turn, and so he, I gather in that situation he's in the road trying to make a turn, but it seems odd that she would rush out into the middle of the road. I um, I saw another media report that said that uh, the it, she, she poured water into the openings of a metal trailer outside um, Fearman's Pork. Now, I don't know whether it was parked outside or not, but if it didn't interfere with his ability to drive on, uh, uh, then how did it interfere with uh, his use of the property? Well, again, you know, he's got to get out of his truck and start yelling at a woman who's feeding his... Uh, well, does he? well, okay, let me ask you this question. Yeah. What happens while she's doing this right. if she slips, she falls, and she goes under the wheels of the truck? Well, I, I, I see your point. That, uh, so, you, you, I mean... Like, the, the, like uh, over and above, over and above yeah. um, you know, the, the feeling for the animals right. and what yeah. her right is, yeah, right. the fact is, you know, what she has done or what is doing could lead to something more dangerous. Well, I mean, it, you, you, you don't, you know, you don't interfere with a truck driver trying to deliver yeah. his load. Yeah, but, yeah, and, 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 and what if there was some sort of safety element there, yeah. the truck starts rolling, like is he, does he get charged because he's got somebody who feels strong about uh, pigs? I mean, where where are his rights? Where yeah, okay, are... well, let's just back it up for a second. So, so it, it, you're sort of 
um, uh, thinking, all right, the guy's actually on the road. He's in the course of driving. He, he doesn't want to be presented with a hazard. He's got to exercise reasonable care, or otherwise he'll be taken to task. So point well taken. But then you could ask the prosecution, well, then this isn't a matter of mischief to uh, to anything. This may be a different matter altogether. Maybe it's a, a Highway Traffic Act uh, violation of some kind. Um, there, there are so many uh, rules and regulations under that that I'm sure they could find something which uh, involves uh, you know pedestrians stepping out and interfering with the uh, traffic. So I, I'm not sure that they sort of I don't think they picked their. Uh, I don't think they they took their stand very carefully in this case. Uh, someone uh, has uh, someone tweeted to me that this will create chaos in the food chain. Do you think that will happen? No, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, clearly, uh, this lady has a. Um a small p political uh, interest. She's she's interested in uh, helping animals, and she uh, she thinks that it's wrong to do this sort of stuff and so forth. And she's demonstrating in a way. But uh, you know, you're not going to see people rushing out into the street all the time doing this. The mere fact that she's acquitted doesn't mean it gives her a license to do it. It just means the court didn't find that it was proven beyond. Um, a reasonable doubt in this particular case. It's, remember, it's a criminal offense. There may be other regulatory ways of dealing with this. And I have to think that overall, if you look at this, although people may differ uh, about you know whether they would support the cause or not, um, it, it really looks to me kind of like, not exactly, uh, you know, notions of civil disobedience. Um, and I think that was sort of a notion that was raised a little bit when there was references to Gandhi and so forth. So... Um, it has that sort of flavor about it. Uh, it's probably not as, as strong as some of those cases, and uh, people can disagree with it. Uh, but uh, but it, it kind of looks a little bit like the civil disobedience thing. And you really have to go back and ask the question, what's the prosecution, uh, what did the police think, or what did the public authorities think they were doing when they brought this case? Surely they must have realized this is going to attract a lot of attention. It's going to attract a lot of sympathy. By by prosecuting it, they've thrown fuel on that fire. They've made right. it into something that would probably never have occurred. You pointed out the publicity. Well, you know, uh, you can probably thank the authorities for bringing a prosecution that was probably not very well thought out from the point of view of, is this in the public interest? Is this using public funds very well? Aren't there alternative ways of coping with it? So uh, some blame lies with the prosecution for perhaps drawing more attention to this or you know, certainly creating the buzz that does attract more attention to it. What about the judge that said, and the lawyer that we just, the clip of them that we just played, the lawyer made it quite clear. Uh, the judge said it's not uh, a crime to... Uh, you know, to show compassion to a pig. And when you look at the, the, the publicity that PETA got out of this, the president was up here during this trial, the whole nine yards, how can you not say they're not going to do it again? It worked perffectly. Well, and what I see is a whole pile of people standing next to the pig places and everybody showing up. I mean, that's the way these people roll. Well, okay. So we'll have to see how it materializes. But uh, I, I don't know if the... I mean, on its face, saying it's not a crime to show compassion to a pig, it's true. The question is in what context. So, if um, if if I, you know, if you you if uh, if I if they tried to just go and take the pigs away and 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 steal them, and I'm not saying they did, but I'm just giving a hypothetical, then that would attract a completely different set of uh, facts. If so, obviously, on its face, just showing compassion to an animal can't be a criminal offense, and it isn't. It's in what context was it, what was surrounding that 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 would potentially make it criminal, such as, you know, was it an interference with the fellow's ability to deliver the load? Was it an interference uh, with, uh, um, you know, traffic or whatever? Uh, I, I think if there were big demonstrations, you might get into a different situation where uh, where if it's shown that uh, traffic is being impeded, the lawful ability of people to travel on the road, this fellow's ability to drive his truck back and forth, that could attract something completely different. But I didn't see that in the facts of the case, That as I, very limited facts I saw here. Uh, would it have been easier to prosecute if they had pointed to the safety issues of this? Maybe, but then uh, they probably should have brought something a lot... Lo- a different lesser. charge. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, uh, it might still have attracted some attention, but if it was just a Highway Traffic Act charge of some kind, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but as I said, they, there are so many different provisions that uh, it, it, it wouldn't have probably the same... Uh, uh, degree of notoriety that it, that you get with a criminal offense because it's they're using the criminal law. It's, it's a very heavy-handed uh, tool. It's uh, you know it's it's 
it's one that really we don't want to use a lot. And remember, you know, we've seen uh, exemptions carved out, um, and they're well established, and they're not in this kind of case. But but we've seen them, for example, in labor disputes where uh, interference with the ability to get in and out. If it were in other than the labor dispute, it would be allowed. But uh, you know, labor disputes are are seen as uh, as uh, different, and then, and the criminal code actually recognizes it. In fairness, it it says if you know you stop work just by quitting work, that's not a that's not a mischief. But we also know when there are picket lines and so forth. I mean, that clearly holds people up for quite a while and have a lot of difficulty back and forth. So there's clearly some allowance for that in the law because there are conflicting interests. And there it's recognized that labor disputes where are, are it's important that people have their rights to uh, to uh, uh, under under our labor legislation to be able to strike and to you know take proper labor action. Will prosecutors think twice about bringing a case like this forward now? I expect so because they can see the kind of reception they got here. They'll look closely at the facts. If they can see something that the average person would say, look, whether, whatever side of the fence I'm on, I, I, I think this is an important issue. I don't care about it. But, but if they can see something beyond that where it's actually a demonstrated hazard and, and it has some incidental consequences quite apart from just being compassionate to an animal, then I think they might well say, okay, look, you know, you've, you've gone beyond the line here, and, and this, is, this isn't about uh, you know, punishing you for being compassionate or not. This is because you, in trying to do something, you've, you've created a serious hazard that could be a criminal so they kind of have to look at those facts very carefully. But likewise, the demonstrators are going to look at it too. And, and if they were wise, they would uh, do things that might attach, attract public attention, but not cross that line where it would give a, a ammunition to uh, to prosecutors to go after them. Anything the company can do at this point to make this uh, a lot smoother to 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 get their product in and out without this sort of thing? Is there anything the company can do here? Uh, I don't know what they would do. I, I don't know. Quite uh, like as I said, I'm not sure. You you've got information that the the fellow was actually on the road trying to turn. So uh, I, I I don't know. Uh, it would uh, I would if I, I mean in general, um, I think that they would try to do as little as possible to uh, uh, to provoke um, demonstrations. Uh, they would try to keep their operations as low profile as possible. I appreciate you're saying, well, trucks have got to go back and forth, but, uh, you know, pick times and places and, and, uh, avoid publicity and, and try and get things done quickly and expeditiously to provide up. Op- so the opportunities aren't there presented to people, uh, that they could exploit to, uh, take this sort of action. But they don't have any case here, do they? I don't, well, I don't know. I can't give them advice on that, but I, I haven't seen any harm to the... Uh, at the end of the day, the, the, I, as far as I know, I don't see anything otherwise. I'm assuming that the load got delivered intact, mm-hmm. so what, kind of, what, what would be their complaint? Jeffrey Reed has been with us, Hamilton attorney. Jeffrey, thanks for the time and insight. Much oh, you're appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Have a good one. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.